And I was amazed a couple of weeks ago when I read that in the year 1900, the average person took in about 600 images, like visual images and, and impressions. That was pretty much the average. And as of this century, coming up 105 years or so, that's gone up about 100 times. And I truly believe that because, frankly, all you have to do is turn on a computer, you know, and in come the dinosaurs from this side and the something else from this side, and, so, and things are just coming at us all day and all night long, if we let them. And so our inner condition, which is what the faculties are about, have a lot to do, it seems to me, <clears throat> excuse me, with what is coming in to us and how good of a break we have on, or a filter we have on that. And certainly our concentration, our ability to be one-pointed and concentrated has a lot to do with that. Uh, today's headlines. Schools Eye Crackdown Policy. And this was for Palo Alto School District. People coming in from out of the city. House Leader, United States. Delay indicted. Governor makes area stop. Well, that depends upon your politics, right? Whether that makes you feel good or bad. But the top headline, Arctic ice cap shrank sharply. So these things come in just all the time. And we really need to choose the kind of news diet that we go on. Are we going to just gorge it and get on it and keep on it all the time? Or are we going to put it in its perspective? It's not to become, you know, head in the sand or anything like that. But I do believe it is an important part of our meditation practice, what it is that we do bring in. So, about six weeks ago, I was up in Santa Rosa, and what do I see but the upbeat times? I mean, I thought I was hallucinating, <laughs> going back to the good old days, you know. Um, and the main feature article is, right on the cover, Living with Balance. It's nice to relax on a regular basis, yet a life of nothing but relaxation would be unbearably miserable. It is extremely fulfilling and energizing to put forth great effort and to make things happen. If that's all you ever do, your spirit will surely become worn away. Life is best when it is balanced, night and day, warm and cool, wet and dry. Are you plagued by frustrations or weariness, anxiety, doubt, confusion, lack of motivation? Sounds like the opposite of the faculties here. Then the chances are very good that something in your life is out of balance. Often the best way to get something done is to stop working on it for a while. And the best way to fu fully enjoy the time when you're not working is to practice discipline, diligence, and commitment during the times when you are working. Your life is blessed with many different aspects. Keep them all in balance, and they will all be of much greater value to you. Well, can you imagine if we fed our heads with that type of information? It's pretty general and pretty elementary, but it just, it's just really worth thinking about. And I wanted to lead out on that because the faculties are these special, almost like valves, internal valves is how I like to image them for myself, that control or can control what's coming in and coming out. And so when in um, the French poet um, Paul Valéry in the latter part of the last century said, our greatest misfortune is that we have no organ, no kind of eyelid or break to mask or block a thought or all thoughts when we want to. 
So it's, it's, it's these faculties that can enable us to apply the valve or apply the brake or apply the gas, just depending. So it's, it really is an art and we can work on it all the time. And the Buddha gave us the news and there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is we all suffer and we have anxiety, we have you know, turmoil, we have difficult times of our lives and things that we have to deal with. But the good news is there's something that we can do about it. And that's something that we practice about in our tradition is mindfulness. And it is the third, and third I'd like to think for a reason, the central of the five faculties. It's right in the middle. The first being faith. Faith for those of you who are uh, recovering from any form of uh, religious discipline is also termed confidence. So if faith bothers you, just call it confidence. And I loved a definition I heard of that many years ago of faith and it was faith is not sitting on a chair that isn't there. So if you think about that, very often we can, it's almost like blind faith, right? That somebody is going to do something for us. Somebody else is going to make us happy. Something else is going to come and intercede and make everything okay. Kind of like when we were little kids, you know. So it really is, it's a wonderful faculty but what it needs to control is um, just a moment here now I just lost my train of thought who remembers what it controls what does faith control anybody remember from Inez's talk no what does it control close it's balanced by wisdom absolutely but it controls hopelessness or doubt so that feeling of kind of that existential feeling that you know things just aren't going to work out faith is like a, a counter to that or a control of that but as Lewis has mentioned it is definitely um, uh, balanced by wisdom and so there's a kind of we we have a certain sense of faith or confidence but we don't want to move all the way to the blind faith piece we want to balance it with wisdom or true experience in our lives that lets us know the second faculty is effort and it's, um, it controls or it's the valve for what? Something we can be very commonly doing when we don't want to do something. <laughs> laziness. So there's effort, that's a faculty. Laziness, it controls or counterbalances laziness. The third, as I said, right in the middle, mindfulness and it controls or counterbalances heedlessness. The fourth one we'll be talking more about this evening, concentration, and it balances what? Anybody have an idea before we start talking more about it? We're concentrated, what aren't we? Scattered. Pardon? Scattered. Exactly, very good. Scattered or kind of agitated in some way. It's exactly right. And um, it's, it's, um, uh, its partner here, and what kind of governs it or helps it along or balances it is, anybody know that one? Concentration? Effort. And you'll see any time you try to get your mind concentrated that you put in too much effort, you start clutching up around it, you start getting anxious, upset, oh, I can't believe it, I'm the worst meditator in the world, 
or a few moments of calm, and oh, this is just fabulous. So we kind of whipsaw back and forth between feelings of everything is fine, everything's a problem. So that's the kind of thing we really want to watch for. And with proper effort and just the right amount of effort, concentration has a very nice even keel to it. And then the fifth is wisdom. And it, of course, controls um, ignorance. So those are our five faculties. And um, they're really wonderful things to think about in terms of our internal, our internal climate, our internal condition. And every day of our lives, we make use of these faculties. And I'll share with you one of my obsessions and give you an example, an everyday example of how the faculties relate to this tiny ball. I don't, know how many of you, I don't know how many of you golf, but I'm sure you all have some skill building thing that you've worked on in your life. And basically, golf, all, every single time I play, relates to these faculties in one way or the other. First thing, having faith or confidence, just a feeling that I can take this ball and move it in a forward direction versus off to the right, off to the left, into the trees, into the ocean, wherever it happens to be. The second, effort, just the right amount of effort. Um, clutching the club too hard, you, know, you get pains in your arms, and you can't even have a kind of a relaxed flow in your motion. Third, uh, mindfulness, really knowing where you are, where your body is in relationship to this little ball. You're, you're taught very early on to keep the left hand straight, because otherwise if you bring it in, you're going to miss the ball. It's an amazing you know, aspect of, of the game is the mindfulness piece and where the body is in relationship to that ball, where the club is, where the tee is, and where you are. Um, concentration. You don't only concentrate on the ball. The important thing is actually to concentrate on the back of the ball. So you're looking down and not even the entire thing. Sometimes you can look at that. It's really considered very important to concentrate on the back of the ball that you're going to hit. So it definitely has a lot of concentration to it. And then last, wisdom. What can you do with this particular club? There's 14 of them. Which one are you going to use? It's all a matter of you know, knowing how far you can hit that particular ball, that particular club, excuse me. So skill building is one type of thing that we do with our five faculties, just general mundane things like everyday life. But of course, the concentration, um, it's, even, it's, it's a much more noble thing than that with our meditation, certainly. So, I'd like to give a little quote from Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master, who spoke of concentration this way. If you want to obtain perfect calmness in your meditation, you should not be bothered by the various images you find in your mind. Let them come and let them go. Notice he's not saying, don't pay attention to them. You let them come and you let them go. Then they will be under control. That valve will be working. But this policy is not so easy. It sounds easy, but it requires some special effort. How to make this kind of effort is the secret of practice. We say concentration, but to concentrate your mind on something is not the true purpose. The true purpose is to see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. This is to put everything under control in its widest sense, 
so not clutching, but its widest sense. Practice opens up our small mind, so concentration is just an aid to help you realize big mind, or the mind that is everything. So it doesn't shut anything out. It doesn't shut any circumstance out. It doesn't shut any people out, any element of what's going on. And you can imagine the easefulness your life would have if that were the case, that you did, didn't have this need to, well, we all have this need, <laughs> seeming need to kind of legislate what's going to be okay and what's going to not be okay in our world. So concentration then is fixing the mind to a single object. And Gil, our primary teacher here, once did a, to me a beautiful job of explaining why concentrate, just an analogy to concentration. And if you have a camera, you're going to take an image, you're going to take a picture. So the, you want to see what's here. You're taking a shot of something. So you've got the camera up, and if the camera shakes, the image is poor. Well, the same thing is true with our minds. If there's a lot of agitation, a lot of shaking, a lot of foment, we can't really see things as they really are. The same thing is true with, let's say, a pond. So we have a pond in front of us, and we stir it up with a stick. And of course, all the mud is coming to the top, and all the distillate particles are going all over the place. And the concept here, of course, is you can't see to the bottom of the pond. You don't know what's there, so you can't possibly work on what's there or have a sense of what's there. You're kind of operating in the blind of what's really happening if the pond is not still. So concentration is a special skill, a special muscle of the, of the mind that enable us, enables us to see clearly, to hold still, and to practice that stillness. But the object is not to have a still mind. The object is what that still mind enables to happen, which is to see clearly what's at the bottom of that pond. So it's a, a really a wonderful image to me of the importance. And my understanding from Gil is that the um, original it's okay. The original um, folks who came from the e- from the west to the east and then back to the west felt as though it was not necessarily a good idea to worry too much about concentration. That mindfulness or the way things are and having a sense of that was a much more important thing. So concentration was not emphasized by the early uh, practitioners who came back to this country. And it's only been more recently that we've worked on it more. And, um, and that it's been more, let's say, even in our center here, it was not something that was talked about much until the last five years or so as, a, as an important skill. Mindfulness was kind of the main event, shall we say. So, so the idea is to see what's there and to really be able to get a sense of what is really beneath it all. And that is something that concentration is just a vehicle for making happen. Gill also talked about there being three different paths to concentration. That the accidental is just someone who just kind of drops automatically into a very concentrated or peaceful state and being able to be really focused on a single point. Then there's the people who really work at it and they read about it and they study it and they work on it with their teacher. That's intentional concentration. And the third, and this is one that I found especially intriguing, and I'll tell you why in a little bit when I tell you more about my personal experience with concentration, is to notice the ways in which you are pulled off of concentration. 
because when you notice those ways that you're pulled off of concentration, that's really the grist for the mill of why you would even be bothering doing it. Because a still mind is only going to last, you know, until the next, next little aggravation in your life. So, but the knowing what's really happening and what is pulling you off of being concentrated is really where it's at. And so I thought that was really a lovely thing to think about with our concentration. And it can also keep us from become, becoming too judgmental about whether we're able to really easily drop into or have a still mind. So that's a really important thing to think about, I believe. And as we said earlier, the antidote to all of this is really mindfulness. And the one of these five faculties, the only one that you can't have too much, like we can have too much faith, it could move toward blind faith. We can have too much effort and it clutches us up. We can have too much concentration and we're not emphasizing living in the world. We can have too much wisdom and sort of be a pain in the rump to everybody else around us. <laughs> but we, or think we have, right? But we can never really have too much mindfulness, too much sense of how the world really is and what is really happening. So um, that, that's probably why when the Westerners went east and came back, they really kind of did not emphasize the aspect of concentration as much. My personal journey with concentration. Let me tell you that two months ago, when I was asked to give this talk, the clutching within me was really, really extreme because it is absolutely my personal Achilles heel. I have a lot of problems with concentration and I have a very busy and creative mind. More specifically, my main bag is planning. Of course, you're never getting anywhere because you're just on this cushion, right? But I can, I can really get into all kinds of things, not so much about the past as, you know, the next 10 minutes, what will happen when I get off the cushion, what do I absolutely need to do tomorrow or the next day or next week, and all of those things that just, of course, are the antithesis of concentration. But I realized that um, it really was a gift because in thinking more about concentration and really being preparing myself for this talk was very, very valuable. And the first thing I realized, wanted to realize in terms of preparing for it was, when am I concentrated? Because I felt that might be a good clue for sharing with you about what are some of the elements. And the time I am probably the most concentrated is when I am under some form of time pressure at work. And I'm telling you, nothing bothers me then. I simply know this grant proposal has to go out and it has to be time stamped by 5 o'clock and it's 2.30 and I've got to do X, Y, and Z and I'm not worried about any kind of procrastination by listening to, you know, answering the telephone or anybody else around. I'm right there concentrated on that grant proposal. It's not only the time element, but it's knowing what it is I need to do. I know what I need to do to complete that grant proposal. Here's a list of guidelines. Here's the questions that need to be answered. I know the time frame. There's just no question about it. Another time is when I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And frankly, I've usually gotten to a stage, because I have a pretty busy job life, that I've let it go, not because I necessarily want to let it go, as much as a lot of other things impinged, but then the time frame comes up and I have to complete it. So I really want to get this done and get it handled. So there's an element of, of, frankly, happiness when I know I'm getting closer and closer to this whole thing that I'm trying to get completed. And also, 
when I know what I'm doing, when I specifically know what it is I need to do. Those are all times when other things do not distract me from doing what I need to do. So what I did was I played that all back, those elements that I have when I am really into something and concentrated, and realized that, frankly, every single one of them relates to one's meditation practice. The first, knowing you have a limited amount of time. As I told you, I have a busy mind. Well, at the meditation retreat in at Memorial Day that we had, for some reason, I started to count how many months I had left to live. <laughs> and being as I am now 61, excuse me, I was 61 at that point, I am now 62, but I realized, okay, let's say I live to 90 years of age. Well, then I have 360 months left to live at 60, but oh no, I'm really 60, almost 62, so I've got 238 months left to live. Anyway, the point is, it's an inane concept in one way, but in another way it wasn't, because after I got this chill, and I've had the chill several times since then in playing it back because I can very easily remember what happened one month ago right now. But just realizing that, you know, there's only like 200 and some of these left if I live to 90 for heaven's sakes and who knows that I will, that, you know, there's a certain imperative to that, a time to that to really focus or concentrate on life and what really matters. So time. I really think that in our practice that can be a very, very valuable aspect or tool to realize that it is very precious and we don't know how much of it we have and frankly we're very blessed with this center with the teachings with our teachers various teachers that come our our, primary teacher with one another because the sangha itself is such a rich place where we can visit with one another and really be honest about what it is that's going on for us and um, what our practice is doing and what our concerns are and what's kind of distracting us from our practice so it's It's a wonderful thing that we have, but time is very important to think about. And I don't want to trip you out on this, those of you who are heading towards 60, but it it was really a a very, very important thing for me. And whether it's 40 or 60, you know, 420 months, whatever it happens to be, there's only so much of it. There's only so much of it. And what comes after that is a mystery. We don't know. So another thing, knowing what it is we need to do. So I'm going to tell you about several of the most elementary types of concentration practices that I've used and ones that help. But which which one are you going to choose? And you don't want to kind of want to to flip from one type of concentration to another type to another type in the same sitting. That's not a good idea. Just like if we decide to count our breath, our breaths maybe in, out, in, out. You don't want to kind of switch from that all of a sudden to metta practice and then move to something else and move to something else. That is a tendency to agitate the mind. So knowing what it is we're going to do, having a sense of what that's going to be when we sit down, and, of course, liking what we're doing. So one of the things that can sometimes happen with our, um, sometimes regularly happen, I should say, for me anyway, is with our mindfulness practice, what we see, what we become mindful of, can be pretty depressing. (laughs) You know, the parts of us that we see in silence can be somewhat (laughs) modesty-making. They can really um, give us a sense of, of um, maybe deflation or a sense of concern or a sense of, gee, will this ever get better? Will I ever become the kind of human that I personally want to be? And all the kind of judgments that we put on ourselves. But concentration practice can be almost kind of an antidote or a balance for that because we try, we 
our effort here is to is to free our mind and to get away from the mindfulness for a period and counterbalance it with a sense of peace and a sense of joy and a sense of focus on one single thing. So it can be really an antidote for mindfulness in the other direction or a sense of just letting the mind just go into kind of a peaceful state for a while. And um, when that works, and it does work sometimes, it's a, it really is a lovely antidote to too much mindfulness or too much looking at what's going on in our world. And it's not to say that mindfulness is not a key, key, key thing. Um, not allowing distractions. I remember a while back, actually several years back, Ajahn Amaro said that one of the key things he does, he's one of the Buddhist monks that comes here and a wonderful teacher, he said that when you're in meditation and a thought comes in and, and perhaps comes in again, at some point he likes to just tell that thought, not now. Now that's not to say never, but you're letting the thought know that it is not in charge. So just a little admonition, just a little not now to that thought can be very useful. And it's just a, a, a one method that can be used um, in the sense of getting more toward concentration again. Um, knowing what you need to do, so choosing that one method and then sticking with it in a particular sit, also very important. And as I said, liking what you're doing and just simply not allowing distractions. So those are all elements or parts of the ecology. I almost think of the faculties as the inner ecology that we have within us that we keep clean, that we, that we work on, that we open the valves and close the valves and, and the control mechanisms for the various things we want to let in and not let in. How much news do we want to let in? How much news do we just want to let go? We don't need to know. Simply don't need to know. So, some of the elemental types or methods for developing concentration. One of the most interesting ones came really here at the center. And there's a a, uh, Burmese teacher named Pa Auk. Speaks very little English, but he came here for an all day about a year ago in January. Lewis, is it one year or two years ago? (laughs) I think, I can't remember if it's one or two. two, Yeah, okay, two years ago in January. And... um, he didn't speak much English, but he, his form of meditation is very, very concentrated. It's literally, you don't kind of search for the place where the breath is strongest. You literally focus just on the breath right here at the nostrils. And that can be a very concentrating thing. Instead of, gee, is it here? Is it here? You know, is it everywhere? My whole breath? Or is it just right here? And so sometimes just really refining it that much can be very useful. And um, the nun that came in, in came with him. We had a 10-day retreat with her, Sister Dupankara, and she was just wonderful. And um, it, was, it was a very useful type of breath meditation that also was very concentrated. So you could try that if you like. And it's not even a sense of the coolness and the, and the, the heat and the, the um, coolness or any you know, movement in and out. It's strictly just the breath at the nostrils. And it can sometimes be very, very peace producing. Um, Counting the breaths up to 10 and then back. We very much recommend that you don't go past 10 because sometimes when we do, pretty soon you know you're at 150, but you haven't really been here in your body. So 
up to 10 and back, or maybe even up to 5 and back. Um, That's a possibility. Another one is just in, one, out, in, two, out. So just counting all the ins or all the outs. So just something that keeps your mind going without being something that's too difficult to concentrate on. And these are all things that can kind of bring the energy down to a more restful place. Several years ago, um, we went to a, an afternoon with um, Thich Nhat Hanh, and we were doing walking meditation. And walking meditation, actually, don't overlook it at all. It's a place where you really can be quite concentrated, just on the steps, one by one. And be very aware of what's happening right then and there. And he said that with each step, you would say, with the right, I have arrived. Right here, right now. Other step, I am home. I have arrived. I am home. And you could shorten that to just arrived, home. Arrived, home. I personally find that very, very peaceful and very settling because this is your home. And this is the home, it's the only home you really have that's going to be here for a while. And so I, I just think that's a lovely thing to, um, to concentrate on. Memorizing a worthy passage. A year ago, or maybe it's two, I'm sorry, I'm starting to lose track of the years, but uh, Gil did a concentration class. And we were told that we were going to, has anybody taken that class, by the way, with Gil? I really recommend it. He usually does it in the spring, and it's five weeks. And the first week, he gave us the Metta Sutta. And it's about, well, about as long as these two sides of this page, 42 lines. And he said, by the end of the five weeks, we'll all have this memorized. Well, (laughs) Jeff and I went home and, you know, we got the first couple of lines and then pretty soon all the lines started sounding the same and we couldn't. It's amazing how the brain can jangle if it doesn't just focus and just stay with it. And so what I decided was that each day I was going to do four and I was going to pay attention to, concentrate on the relationship line to line. And sure enough, after five weeks, I had them all, 42 lines. Not only that, but there's a certain sense, a real sense of, you know, personal, just personal good feeling or power when you do something like that. But what I realized, didn't realize at the time, was that it is a way of bringing all the energy together during some very difficult times at work. So I have one worthy adversary at work who's up on the campus and I'm down on the lower part of the campus and this person is up on the upper part and so I had regular meetings with this person and it was perfect. The 42 lines took me up the stairs all the way to the person's office and when I got there I was arrived, I was home and everything was just fine. You know, there was no problem and it was really quite wonderful and then if she wasn't ready for me I would just go through it again. So don't underestimate the value of a noble passage to concentrate your mind and to concentrate your being in a certain place where you want to be can be very, very useful. And um, I highly, highly recommend it. And sometimes when I'm in a meeting and I know things are going south and at any moment I could possibly you know, do something that's not going to be the wisest thing, I'll just say a little piece of it, just maybe one couplet from, from the Metta Sutta. It's a, it's a beautiful and a very rich... Uh, teaching of the Buddha. It has a lot of wonderful things to it. So I highly recommend that. 
How many of you are familiar with uh, metta meditation? Loving-kindness meditation? This can also be, for those of you who aren't, loving-kindness meditation is um, intention for the well-being of self, others, and world. So we always start with self. The Buddha said you can look the whole world over and never find anyone more worthy of loving-kindness than yourself. So you begin with yourself and then move out to a a special person in your life and then from there to... um, somebody who uh, maybe a mentor or somebody who's been very helpful to you and then on to somebody that you care a lot about perhaps a loved one that there's not a lot of you don't want to deal too much with people you have a lot of issues with or mixed feelings about because that can be kind of hard to do it and then you wish them well and there's several sayings that you uh, come up with may may you be well may you be happy may you be easeful of mind and then you go on and on to the, the other people and eventually keep moving out to the whole world and that can be a very very peaceful thing to do as well, metta meditation. Jeff mentioned to me last night when we were talking about it that that was something that he uses quite a bit. I haven't used it that much, but uh, I trust his judgment on that. But I'm, I'm going to try to use it more. And it's just a way to still the mind. So, let me see what I have missed here. Hmm. A saying by the 17th century French author, Francois La Rochefoucauld, when we are unable to find tranquility within ourselves, it is useless to seek it elsewhere. How true that is. So we we kind of have a tendency, you know, to do that. And this is 17th century, so he seemed to have it figured out a long time ago. I always wonder if these people are Buddhists, some of them, because it just seems so, I guess there's only so much truth to go around. So no matter what we are, you know, it doesn't really matter as much as, you know, how developed we've uh, uh, become as, as humans. And then from the Buddha, the Buddhas are only teachers. You must make the exertion. So we have a path. We have some faculties that we can use, some controlling features that we can use. And then it's up to us to really make the exertion or the effort to fulfill it. So at this point... I'd like to ask maybe uh, if some people have some suggestions or some sharing you would do, and then we can have questions and answers as well, of special ways that you use to do concentration, or special things that you uh, find useful in becoming more concentrated. Anybody? Yes. <laughs> a contraindication. Yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yes, good. Sometimes doing a body scan and uh-huh. help me concentrate too and bring me down and concentrate on like just physical reality. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. The body is the home, right? And that's what I like so much about that arrived and home concept because it really does ground you. Yeah. That's a good one. Anybody else? Another piece of the bad news is, from what um, I've noted, is that oftentimes for concentration to happen, you have to let certain things go. You have a tendency to kind of hold on kind of tightly to the way they are. And sometimes I think of that with myself in my 
um, in my concentration is what am I holding on to and not just willing to to let it go. So, yes, Ingrid. Yes. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the Buddha has said when Mara was coming, when he during his night of enlightenment, and Mara came with with all the various um, things to tempt him and so on, and he would say, "I see you, Mara." So to see this thing and to pay attention to it and let it know that it's it's there and you know it's there can sometimes just give it the sense of it can let you be for a while. Yeah, it's a very good point. Anybody else? Yes? I have a really uh, hard time blocking out. That doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. If I say, go away, it just comes back bigger or uh-huh. it, it doesn't listen. Um, but I find if I, 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 I call it the say what game, like you say. <laughs> I say, say what to whatever it is. Yes, it, yes. It, to try to understand what it's trying to say, it will yep. say what I think that's excellent. And it's very much like what he, he said, that third type of concentration, which is what is keeping you from being concentrated. So you're, you're engaging that thing that's keeping you from being concentrated and giving it its due. So, you know, I think the skillful thing here would be what's the best effort for this particular time? Is it better to pay attention to it, as you're saying, or is it better to let it go and let it know that it, it can let you go for a while and you'll come back later? So I think it, it depends probably very much, but I think either one would probably work and the effort just depends which one will work at that point. Yes? I do something similar to what you do, is that sometimes my demons will sort of turn into beings in some way, because they're so recognizable, like this <laughs> tangle of anxiety that comes along and things, and I'm sort of fond of them if I'm not, you know, really like, like reacting to them really strongly. but. When I sit, I start concentrating on my sits bones first, so then I'm mm-hmm. solidly there. Grounded. That helps me concentrate. And then when I get too much of some individual demon, and they tend to be themes. It tends to be like it's fear or anxiety or sniping in my head or something like that. I'll invite that little creature, and sometimes they have like arms and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, here we're sitting now, oh. and. It seems to help, and it's like it can get a little crowded, you know, <laughs> if you're like really a little wacko, yeah, you know, at the moment. It, yeah, it seems to, if I remember to do it, if I'm not too, you know, adult to, yeah, to too it, agitated, yeah, right? Yeah, it, 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 it helps. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Rumi wrote a wonderful poem, and I wish I had, met it, I had memorized that one for you, but called, like, I think it's called The Guest House, that you invite everything in, and you, you make friends with it, so you make friends with the demons, you make friends with the difficult things, and because pushing them away practically never cuts it. It just, they become, as you say, bigger and, and more. Um, so that's, that's very, very interesting. Anybody else have anything about um, methods they use? Or we can go to questions. One thing that, oh. um, that I uh, probably would never have really gotten 
very concentrated unless I sit on a longer retreat. My mind is so busy during the day that uh, <coughs> it takes about three days. And it feels like the analogy that pops into mind after that it occurred on, on some longer retreats after about, it takes about three days usually. It's like, a, it feels like stopping a big truck with no brakes. You know, finally it gets kind of stopped. And there's a very profound quietness that can mm-hmm. occur. Um, and different things that physiological changes sometimes that occur, different sensations in the face or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those things themselves can be a weird distraction. Once sometimes, like, a, mm-hmm. once I hear, often I would hear something almost like a mosquito, and it was so vivid, I would swear there was a mosquito in front of me. You know, and it was like, and I could start thinking about that and making or other, other stuff happens to it. But anyway, the main thing is noting that that occurs. And one of the things that, that Lee Brasington talks about and from my chemist teachings is, is, is being aware of, of how you get there mm-hmm. and then how you come back out and what occurs in the coming out process or what takes me out of it. Like if I'm on a long retreat and I go to the dining room for lunch, forget it. It's gone. There's just so much stuff going on in there. Yeah, I'm very glad you mentioned that because that's very true for me as well. On a meditation retreat, at first, there's so much happening and so much, you're in, you're so much momentum that it just doesn't stop automatically that you can become more concentrated or more peaceful of mind. But the longer you're there, no doubt about it, you become more and more able to have a sense of relaxation or, or peace of the mind and ability to be mindful of what's happening. Um, and remember, the key thing here, it's not to have this concentrated mind. I mean, the key the reason for this is not just to have a calm mind. And I think that might be another reason why when the teachers first came over, um, I, had, I heard Gil talking about this just a little bit, that that was the case. But maybe that was it, that people would think, aha, that's it, just this ability to have a peaceful mind. I don't know if any of you have read The Path with Heart by uh, Jack Cornfield, but when he came back, he was still in robes, Jack Cornfield of Spirit Rock. And he was one of the first people to go to the East and then come back to the West and establish a practice here teaching, etc. But he had so many issues with his family and his parents and things going on that even though he could probably, I'm sure, I can't speak for him, but I'm sure there was plenty of stillness and, and concentration in his practice when he was in the East. But when he came here, he was really up front, you know, caught right up with his own, um, his own demons, you know, the psychological issues, family issues and others, and realized that Frankly, the only thing that was really something that worked for him was, was therapy. So this practice does also encourage that there are times when a therapeutic approach is also useful to, um, to address things that are happening for you. It's not a, a weakness at all. It's rather a sign of, of strength of knowing that this is something that, that's needed um, in addition to one's meditation practice. Because painful things can come up, most definitely, and, um, and things that need addressing. So thanks for bringing that up. That's absolutely true for me as well. And by the way, we have a number of half-day retreats and also all-day retreats. And Jeff and I manage the Saturday retreat. And, you know, whereas Monday night is chock-a-block 125 people in this room, very often um, the weekend retreats, there's maybe only 20 or 25 people in the room. So the sustained practice is very, very useful for concentration. And if you can't stay for the whole day, Stay for half of the day. You don't have to stay for the whole day. The only suggestion would be is that you come and go when people are doing walking meditation or during the lunch hour or something. But um, it really is a wonderful gift to yourself 
to set a day aside and just come here to the center and um, walking and sitting meditation. And you're very, very welcome to come. And there's a Dharma talk at some point during the day. Uh, Every other month they have um, uh, instruction and every other month there is no instruction, but there's interviews with Gil or whoever the teacher is. So it, it just depends which one you'd rather do. The instruction one can sometimes be easier for your first all day retreat to go to one where there is instruction versus one that's all sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. But it really is very, very useful and a very important way to get just bring the revs down a little bit on the internal ecology. Any uh, questions or additional comments? Then I'd like to sit maybe for ten minutes and maybe choose one of the possi- one of the types of concentration. Counting up to 10 and back, or just noting in, out, in, out.
finish this evening, I'll share with you the last half of the Metta Sutta, one of the fruits of my concentration practice. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart does one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from anger or ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one does sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. <laughs>